0: Matt Seiler here, lover of a good competition. One of the other guests on Jeff's phenomenal podcast threw a gauntlet trying to make his episode the most popular on the phenomenal ATBS, the podcast series. Being the frequent guest on the only sub-series, SFAO, I want to make sure that I win, and by winning, Jeff wins, and by Jeff winning, we all win. So please like, share, Own, make sure that it gets the popularity it demands as ATPS rules the world. Welcome to ATBS, the podcast, all things big and small. I'm your host, Jeff Volmrich. In the upcoming episode, Keith Gorman sits down in the host seat to have a conversation with me. So we've turned the tables. We decided that it's a 90-minute conversation. It would be wise to break it into two parts. So the episode you're about to hear is part one of Thriving. With guest host Keith Gorman. I hope you enjoy it.
1: So here we are ATBS, the podcast, all things big and small. My name's Keith Gorman, and I have the pleasure today of introducing you more completely to Jeff Volmerich. I had the pleasure of meeting Jeff Volmerich uh, probably for the first time back in our college days, back at Saint Lawrence University. I was the ski team captain at the time, and I was meeting freshmen that had been brought in, and there were there were some freshman skiers on the team that were ski jumpers, Nordic ski jumpers. I remember Jeff Volmerick coming in, and and Chris Hastings, another great ski jumper, and and these folks had had talent beyond belief. And uh, we thought as alpine skiers that that we could get things done, but these guys were really getting things done. And it was uh probably my first my first experience with Jeff and uh, Jeff was at the time bigger than life and still remains that way today. And so here we are, we're uh, at the ATBS pod ship and very happy to be here with Jeff. And uh, Jeff, let me just start off with how is it that you arrived in Park City?
0: Mm. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on ATBS podcast. <laughs> Love having you on your show. I'm glad to be here in the pod ship and have the, the tables turned. It's it's fantastic. Park City is, uh, is home and has been for 28 years. Prior to that, I, I lived in Lake Placid, New York. I've always had roots there. My family's had a place on an island in the middle of the lake for 125 years. We celebrated that last year. And so, you know, growing up in Lake Placid or moving to Lake Placid full time uh, in when I was 10 years old, 1974, I was a 10 year old skier. So I had learned to ski in Western Pennsylvania and I was a skier. And if you look at any 10 year old boy out on the mountain, they're bouncing and jumping and, and skiing that terrain like like we don't ski at this point. They see it differently. And we moved to Lake Placid and oh, there were ski jumps. And that's attractive to a 10-year-old knucklehead on skis. And so uh, I started out on uh, what ended up being an 18-year ski jumping career um, and being based in Lake Placid. One of my guests last week was Billy DeMong, who is the executive director of USA Nordic. There are only 30 places in the country that have ski jumps, legitimate ski jumps in the backyard today. That wasn't the case many years ago, but I was fortunate enough to be in Lake Placid and and have that really exceptional youthful experience as uh you know as a ski jumper and that's a whole story unto itself but i finished up in 88 i thought i was finished and i did kind of retire after that in 89 and then i had some unfinished business um due to a a passion for life and A propensity for a little bit of drink and some entertainment and things
1: like that before we move on to that jeff though let me just (laughs) point out that that the level of your ski jumping the level of your ski jumping was was well above average i mean you were skiing on the world cup level the highest level of ski jumping in the country and you were competing on behalf of your country you were representing the United States. You were on the U.S. ski team, the U.S. Nordic ski jumping team. And I also recall that you held the record on the 90-meter ski jump in Lake Placid. Is that correct? What is now called the 90-meter. Then yes. we used to call it the 70-meter. Yes. Yeah, 92 <laughs> meters on
0: the 70-meter. And, and I held that record. And and uh, it was my favorite place to jump. It was home territory, right? That That 70-meter jump was home base for me. That jump and a jump in Brattleboro, Vermont were my two favorite ski jumps in the world. And I had some of my greatest experiences on those hills. And uh, so, you know, I'm being interviewed by one of my very dear friends and one of the humblest human beings I know. And and I've learned a lot over the years, learned a lot about humility from my father, right? He always said, Jeff, you know, you, you may be good, uh, but there's always going to be somebody chasing you. So don't get too high on your horse. Don't get too high on yourself, and um, and that the, that lesson has stuck with me. So you know, hearing that, you know, you deliver, you know, those accolades or what have you, it's it's humbling, and um, it was spectacular, right? It was a real joy to grow up in a place like Lake Placid where there were there were Olympic heroes in the sport of ski jumping. Jay Rand was my hero and, and he lived right down the street and he'd gone to the Olympics at 16 years old and he'd been to two Olympics by the time I showed up on the scene and so there were people there that you could look up to and then the Olympics came through Lake Placid when I was 16 years old you know the miracle on ice and Eric Haydn and all my ski jumping heroes came through town and it was like oh well that's where I want to go that's what I want to do I think I already knew that you know, we started out in Lake Placid and then we skied, we jumped around on the on the regional tour in the northeast, and then we spread into the Midwest. And there was a little place in Madison, Wisconsin, where the first place in the country to have artificial surfaces on on a ski jump. And, you know, drive 24 hours and get out there and, you know, jump in the summertime. And great friends, uh, one of whom you mentioned, Chris Hastings, who went we went to St. Lawrence at the same time and remain wonderful friends. And, you know, went from the Midwest and then got out to the West. I remember getting into the Rocky Mountains at about 16 or 17 years old. I was in the Junior Nationals and they were in Winter Park, Colorado. And I was floored, man. It was March, the blue sky, the white snow, the warm sun. And uh, I th- thinking back on it, I think that must have been a time when I realized like, oh, I'd like to live there. I'd like to get West sometime. And, you know, many, many, many years later, I ended up in Park City, you know, but we went from regional to domestic around the country to all around the world for, you know, junior world championships and um, Europa Cup and World Cup events. And that was always coming and going. You had to earn your place onto the team and you had to keep it, uh, which was sometimes seemed easier than others. And, and, you know, my good friend, Chris Hastings, and I, I think we We viewed the sport as a bit of a combined event. You know, some people took their ski jumping extremely seriously, and and we did, but we also felt like it probably was a good idea to get out and see what the local culture was all about as well. So (laughs) a little combined event there. And, uh, you know, it it wasn't always the best course of action, but man, oh man, it was entertaining and, and educational. So you look to Excel on the hill as well as off the hill yeah and i felt like i did exceptionally well in the combined event on a regular basis (laughs) no question about it you know chris and i were uh we're partners in crimes and and brothers in arms all the way through and and domestically we traded off a bunch of competitions you know first and second place and and had a blast doing it and um and, and you know shooting for the olympics and 84 came around Sarajevo. Um, I wasn't in prime form. I was, uh, I was 21 at that point. And, uh, Jeff Hastings, who has our best ski jumping finish in the last 75 years, got fourth in those Olympics. And instead of, uh, the tryouts weren't going great for me. And so Jeff and I went to Japan, he was already pre-named and I knew I wasn't going to make the Olympics. So we went over to Japan and competed in the world cup over there. And, I turned 21 in Sapporo, Japan, which was awesome. And how'd that go? Uh, that's <laughs> well, I think it went very well. <laughs> there were there were some others who didn't think quite so highly of my shenanigans, but you know, it was some of my early days of of hanging out with the uh, the Scandinavians, and they you know, they know how to they know how to celebrate a 21st birthday. <laughs> So you were learning all the time. You started, you're learning at a young age. I think I've had my eyes fairly wide open most of the time, unless they weren't. Um, but but yeah, I was always curious. I, I very definitely am a, cur- I'm a curious guy. You know, the unknown has never really been something that I've been afraid of. Um, and a lot of that comes from ski jumping. You got to look down a hill and, and not be able to see where you're going to land. And I think that was a big part of how I've gotten to be how I am. And then 88, just to kind of wrap that whole ski jumping thing up in 88, you know, we're ski jumping all the time. We're not just ski jumping every four years. Lots of people who see ski jumping on TV, they're like, oh, it's happening all the time. So it's a, it's a year round proposition and that's what you do. And and I was focused on that. 88 had a great opportunity to make the Olympics and my good friend, Chris Hastings got the last spot on the Olympic team and I narrowly missed by some really small margin of fractions of points out of many hundreds of points and things like that. It was pretty, felt like a really, really big deal at the time. In hindsight, with, with decades of, you know, perspective, it seems much less important. Chris is a wonderful friend of mine. He went to the Olympics in Calgary. People oftentimes will mistakenly say, oh, Jeff was an Olympic ski jumper. Well, I didn't make the Olympics. I strived for that. And, you know, I, I've said to many people over the years that, uh, and I, am sure this was probably, they tried to instill this in me, but I wish somebody had said, Jeff, the U S ski team is not a big enough goal for you. And going to the Olympics is not a big enough goal. You should set your sights beyond that. Let's go to the Olympics and let's make some noise. Let's go to the Olympics and let's, let's compete. And I, I suspect it was said, but maybe I wasn't listening. So Then after the 88 tryouts in winter, I think 89, I retired and um, I just felt like I had had enough and it was time for a change. I moved down to Florida to get as far away from the snow as I could because we'd been chasing it for 18 years. And somewhere along the way, while I was down there, I came to the realization that it was time to stop drinking as well. So I had a very, what I consider to be a a, a wonderful 10 year drinking career. Um, You were familiar with it. And it was a, it was a great time in my life. I really wouldn't change anything, but I did stop and I'm grateful that I did. So I quit drinking at 26 and I've got AA to thank for that. And a lot of great people around me, a lot of great love and support. And uh, once I got sober, I realized that I hadn't finished the ski jumping thing on my terms. And so in the fall of 1991, I decided I would try out for the 92 Olympics or I'm sorry, in the, in the spring of 91, I decided I would try out. And so I trained all summer in Florida and then did some ski jumping and training. And and I went back up on those big ski jumps and holy shit, what 18 months will do for the perspective, you know, when you're in your late twenties. And I found myself on the top of ski jumps thinking, what am I doing here? And tried out, didn't make the Olympics. And then ski jumped through that winter at some of my favorite places domestically, all over new England, out in the Midwest. And I had an absolute ball And I wrapped up at a tournament called the uh, Fred H. Harris Memorial Tournament in Brattleboro, Vermont, where to retire the trophy, which is a monster, you have to win the event three times. And I won it first at like 16 years old and I won it again at 20. And I was pretty confident that I was going to take that beauty home. And it was really something that I strove for in my career. Didn't get that. You know, those are all learning experiences. I sold all of my gear out the back of my truck at the end of the Brattleboro tournament. And that was the last time I ski jumped competitively. Wow. So, so it was, it was a great ride,
1: great friends, great experiences. I wouldn't trade it for the world. So then you took the ski jumping experience mm. and uh, obviously you would learned a lot. You uh, were successful on and off the hill. You also were learning a bit about probably early on at a young age, challenges and disappointments and the way to potentially handle those best or maybe not the best way. But then you ended up in Park City and and I think started to share your knowledge and your experiences. Yeah. Do I have that right?
0: Yeah. I finished up my jumping in the spring. It was maybe February. I think the I think the Fred H. Harris tournament is then. And I went back down to Florida and I spent some months down there and realized that I, I was, I'm was i not a Florida guy. I'm a mountain, snow, lake, streams, That that's me. And I'd done enough of the Florida thing and I, I felt like I needed to come back up out of there. And I made my way up through Georgia and into Kentucky and, and had a nice soft place to land in Kentucky with my friend Jeff Camp, who at the time lived there, now lives in Park City. And while I was in Kentucky, I started to get wind through, I think my mother, long before cell phones, that there was a, out in Park City, Utah, they were building some facilities in the hopes of attracting the Olympics, not in preparation for the Olympics, but for the first time ever, building venues in an effort to get the Olympics. And a guy named John Bauer, who had been Nordic program director for the U.S. Ski Team, and he'd seen me go through my career, and then what he saw was me go back and finish on my own terms, and I gained, you know, a great deal of his respect through that effort and how I how I pursued that and how I conducted myself. And he was the first person hired at the Utah Olympic Park in Park City um, in, I think he was hired in 91, and he had to put together a team of people to run a potential Olympic venue. And one of the things in Park City that hadn't happened in about 30 years was ski jumping. It used to be a very vibrant jumping team here, and um, you know, there's a, there's a great and, and rich ski jumping history in Utah, but there hadn't been ski jumping in 30 years. So they were looking for somebody to start some ski jumping programs and be a coach. And, uh, I interviewed and John Bauer was the guy and, and I got the job and it was a, I was 28 years old. It was a 12, I'm sorry. It was a six month opportunity, six month contract. Salary was $12,000. And my job was to to start a ski jumping program in a state-run facility or within a state-run facility. And if anybody has ever tried to requisition a shovel from a state, it's in triplicate and it takes months and things like that. And we needed ski jumping skis and boots and we needed all kinds of stuff. And they're like, "We can you get that down at Dick's Sporting Goods? And I was like, no, we're going to have to get that from Europe. And that doesn't fit into the state model and at that time, I, I was in a really early on, like literally the first weekend I was in Park City, I got volunteered by John Bauer to work at the now monstrously successful Park City Ski Swap. And it's been ongoing for 40 some odd years. And he volunteered me to help move in the gear and work the work the Friday night, which go, doesn't open until midnight or something. And that was my introduction to Park City and the people of Park City. And Russ Coburn and Jan Peterson, uh, rest his soul, were at the helm of Jan's Mountain Outfitters at the time. And they took me under their wing. They took the program. Jan had been a ski jumper. He'd been a four-event skier when he was a kid growing up in Utah. And they just said, man, whatever you need, and if we can help you get it, you just let us know. And there was another woman, and I'm going to have a hard time bringing up her name, but she, at the time, was at the helm of the the Utah Winter Games, she also said look jeff whatever you need if if there you need bibs or you need this or you need that and so we ha- we cobbled together a ski jumping program i'd back my black van up to the side of the little jumps and turn on the music and let my rottweiler bear out and we had a little horse trailer that had some ski jumping skis in it and we started we started ski jumping and to back up a little bit when i got the opportunity i was in lake placid made my way up from kentucky and I packed up my black van and my windsurfer and my mountain bike and my dog, and I drove across the country and moved to Park City site unseen and have found
1: no compelling reason to leave in 28 years. That's an incredible story. And it's it's really indicative of of you giving back to a sport that gave you so much and is is so uh, representative of, of just you as a person, I think, but also the the program that you built and the resources that you were able to corral in terms of surrounding yourself with people and resources. And I believe today that the Park City Ski Jumping Program is probably one of the healthiest ski jumping programs in the entire country. It's one of the good ones for sure. Yeah, here in here in your other home stomping ground of Lake Placid. Yeah, Lake Placid, Steamboat, Springs, Colorado,
0: and... Park city and then, and then some in the Midwest too, but, but it's a really vibrant program. And one of my really good friends, longtime friends, Matt Twiliger. in fact, he's my longest, he's the friend that I've known the longest. My family are the only people that I can remember knowing longer. Matt and I met when I was 10 and he was seven and we were both ski jumpers and he's up at the Utah Olympic park. Now he came out as one of my coaches years and years ago. And he's he's been spreading the good word and and programming the facility and you know bringing in great coaches and and thriving right so that that place is jamming and, and if you go up there any given evening in the wintertime now there's ski racing and there's freestyle and there's slope style and there's Nordic ski jumping and freestyle aerial acrobatics and and you know it's so much going on up there it's and I love going up and just checking it out you know plugging back in and and you know, people are like, oh, what are you doing here? And, you know, I just have an interest and, and watch
1: from a distance. It's been great. <laughs> That's fantastic. And so you, you obviously end up setting up shop here in Park City. You get married, you meet your wife, Fiona. Uh, Fiona up, ends up moving to Park City. You have two beautiful daughters, Taylor and Savannah, and you end up raising your family in Park City. Um, and you live a, a pretty... Pretty incredible lifestyle. Uh, you've got the mountains here. You get to fish. You get to snow ski, and also you get to begin to work on your water skiing. Now, <laughs> now I, I've known you for for more than four decades, and we have water skied together for a number of years, and you know admire the skill at which you water ski. And I'm bringing up the water skiing because, um, you know, because I. I I know how again as as an older athlete that you know how much you have to put into things to try to get results out of it and and the the commitment and everything that you put into your water skiing and the success that you were having competing extremely well and uh you know I'm I'm going to take you now sort of fast forward to 2016 and mm. 2016 I, mean, I I remember talking to you just before you were getting ready to go to a pro-am. I believe it was out in
0: North Carolina, North a little, Carolina. little mountain, North Carolina, and I'd never been there. And I ski, I've water skied my whole life. Yeah. And, you know, my mother turned me on to it when I was a kid growing up in Lake Placid. And, and um, it's always been a thing in my life. And, um, and I still go back to Lake Placid in the summer. And, and at one point, after i'd been in utah for quite some time i'd been here for 15 years i think yeah 13 14 years and we've got some reservoirs you know the western united states is more reservoir rich than than lake rich right you're from central new york a beautiful part of the country and there are lakes all over the places and and you know glacially established lakes and and out west if we don't dam it there aren't too many lakes and um so, when I got to Park City, they were just filling the Jordanelle Reservoir, which is now a, a water playground paradise. And they were just filling it. And a buddy of mine, Greg Cutt, and I bought a Mastercraft ski boat and we were partners on it for the next oh, 12 or 14 years. I think we had two different boats. And we were skiing out on the Jordanelle. We'd go out early in the morning and go rip it up. And you practically had to wear a dry suit year round because even though the water was warm, you'd go out there in the morning and at 6,000 feet in the mountains on the backside of the Wasatch, it's 38 degrees. And so there were literally summers where I didn't take my dry suit off because we were done by 730 in the morning. And at one point, I was back in Lake Placid and these, these friends of mine, John Wilkins and Terrence Fogarty looked at me. I think it was John Wilkins looked at me. He said, Jeff, that 20 year old ski that you're skiing on, it's got to go. And I said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, you go talk to Terrence. And Terrence said, well, you got two choices. You can get a new ski or you can get the new hard shell bindings. You could do both. That's what I chose. And I jumped on that new ski and um, literally three turns in, I was like, this is a whole new game. And it really sparked my re sparked my interest in tournament water skiing, which I'd done as a young guy in Lake Placid, kind of from 14 to 20 and i was i water ski jumped and i slalom skied and and um and a guy had come into lake placid when i was about 15 a guy named bill peterson and he rocked our world man he knew everything about skiing show skiing slalom skiing how to build a water ski jump like he fired us up he lit the he lit the fuse for us and um you know so i did that when i was in in my teens and into my early 20s and then ski jumped all over the world and, and wasn't able to do it as much and when i got to park city continued my passion for skiing, but then it was just all free skiing out on the lake. And that was great. And, you know, not skiing around buoys and not jumping off jumps and stuff. And somewhere, you know, 12, 13 years later, John Wilkins says to me in Lake Plastic, he said, Oh, you know, there are a bunch of really good water skiers in Utah. And I said, you know, I see some good skiers, but I'm pretty sure you're not talking about the ones that I'm skiing on the Jordan, seeing on the And sure enough, that is the case. There are some of the best water skiers in the world live in Utah. Nick Parsons, Chris Rossi, Nick grew up in Bountiful, Utah, and he was in the top 10 as one of the best professional water skiers for years and and still a, a ripping skier. And Chris Rossi lives here. And again, these guys were top, top, top skiers in the world. And so I went looking for those better water skiers and I found them. And, oh, lo and behold, there are all kinds of tournaments going on in Utah and and high-level water skiing. And I got invited in. I I bumped into Nick Parsons at a ski lake in California that I had just gone out to for Father's Day to try out my new ski. Oh, you should come to, you know, Sun Tan and try our tournament on July 4th. And that was the beginning of a 10-year, really solid run at tournament water skiing. Um, And that was like 2009. And so I was 40. Whatever, I was 45 years old or something. Really, you know, you know me well enough that, you know, if I find something interesting, I'm in, right? ATBS the podcast. Sure, I'm in. Let's let's go along. Let's let's see how to do this. And tournament water skiing was like that for me. So I really dove in and skied all around the West and skied in tournaments back east and some regional tournaments and and some pro-ams and some, actually I hadn't made it to the pro-ams, but I'd made it to the national championships and skied down in Okehele in Florida. It was just marvelous. It was like, it was like being a kid again. And um, so all of that is background to get us to 2016. And I was here at the house and and the family was out of town and uh, Fiona travels a bunch. And, and I got up in the morning and I was at a 4.30 flight down to North Carolina and you know, the day before I'd had a great training. I was skiing at the top of my game, best water skiing I'd done in my life. No, no question about it. And I started packing up in the morning and, and I just didn't feel quite right. And I had this little stitch in my side on my left side. And, and uh, you know, that was like seven thirty eight, And you know how, when you've got I, Keith is, is a super humble human being and ski races and does a whole lot of things at a high level at his age, our age, a couple of things that are a little different than me, but we share that commonality and that passion for self discovery and, and pushing ourselves. And you know how when you're getting ready for a trip, you're fired up, right? Like you're you should be ready to go. And I was kind of kicking the tires a little bit. I didn't feel great. And from seven thirty in the morning until eleven thirty in the morning, I, things kind of went downhill and I was like, ah, I think I better take a nap. And by, you know, eleven o'clock I called Fiona. She was out in San Francisco and I said, You know, my side really, really hurts and it doesn't feel like a muscle and it doesn't feel like a stomach ache. And then I was in the hospital by one o'clock that afternoon. And by three o'clock that afternoon, Fiona was home from San Francisco and I went in for a CT scan and, you know, first they think it's kidney stones or something like that. And and that's not what it was. And And then, oh, we're going to send you in for another CT scan. And then Fiona was there and That's when we heard the words, we're sorry to say, that it appears as though you have cancer or something is very wrong with your kidney. And I saw the pictures. I was like, well, that doesn't look like a kidney at all, right? The other one looks perfectly like a kidney bean. And um, not to get into great detail, but that night was tough. They sent me home with some some oral medication and it was not nearly enough. We were back at the hospital by two o'clock in the morning. By five o'clock that next afternoon, my left kidney had been taken out and... I had a, <laughs> actually to, to back up to the evening before they medicated me so that I could you know function because the pain was really bad and they delivered the shocking news I guess and he said I'll give you guys some time to think about it and see what you want to do and I you know that he walked out of the door and I looked at Fiona and she said you want to go to the water ski tournament don't you <laughs>
1: I said <laughs> yeah that's exactly what I want to do so you were thinking that you've just been told that you have cancer And that maybe if they take the kidney out, you'll still be able to make the tournament.
0: No, what I was thinking is (laughs) that I was,
1: I was pretty heavily medicated and I'm not even sure
0: that they, excuse me, I'm not sure they used the word cancer at that point because, because I'm not sure we knew. Right. But, Uh but clearly things weren't right. But at that point he walked out and and Fiona said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, what I really, what I really want to do is I want to go to that tournament. And the doctor walked back in and I said that to him and he said, well, we could probably get you to the tournament jeff but i'm not sure based on what we're going to have to put in you to get you there that it's going to work out that well so i i accepted the fact that i wasn't going to go to that tournament that i'd had my sights set on for freaking years because john wilkins and Terrence fogarty in upstate new york every fall they migrated down the east coast to the warm weather and little mountain was like a mecca you could put up good scores. The water was kind. The driving was good. There were really good skiers there. So I was psyched to go. And I was, again, I was skiing at the best that I've ever skied. And then, you know, took a little kick in the gut and had to take a few
1: steps back. So that was probably one of the first disappointments that you were about to experience was not going to the water ski tournament. Then there was going to be some other news that was going to start to come. Yeah and you were gonna learn about about a new challenge. Yeah. So tell us about that. Then you're gonna have to go deep, right? And, and uh, I think it was probably after that,
0: after I'd been in the hospital the next day and had the kidney taken out and um, I think we were home, maybe we were, I don't know, I forget how it all works because, uh, or the timing of it exactly, but it was all in pretty quick succession. And it was determined that I had um, papillary renal cell carcinoma and my kidney, and the cancer were mostly necrotic so the cancer had eaten up the kidney and that thing needed to come out fortunately we have two as we all know and then i heard those you know you've got papillary renal cell carcinoma later we determined that it was type one and so that was that was the beginning of a whole new chapter in my life and our lives fiona's mine our daughters my friends you uh, things changed I haven't, I don't think I've changed that much. Well, actually, that's not true. Much of me remains intact and and I'm very similar, but I've also, as we may get to, and people who know me know I've been on quite a journey and, um, you know, there are a lot of ways to go. I think when, when one hears those words and I only knew one way to go. And that was, you know, integrate the information and meet the challenge. And, you know, living life is what I do, right? I'm, I'm all in, I love it. And if there's something new to try and there's something new to do, then, then let's figure it out and let's give it a go. And maybe for the, not completely the first time in my life, but certainly one of the biggest experiences in my life was that I was gonna have to dig in and learn about something that was non-athletic. I was gonna have to dig into myself. I was gonna have to go inward and figure out how to play the game and i've said since then cancer diagnosis i i you know if you want to dance i'll dance i don't see it as a fight i don't like being a fighter that is not to say that i resign myself to what cancer may have or people may have in store or what conventional medicine and i participate in conventional medicine and conventional treatment um but I don't listen to, I'm, no, I'm not interested in labels and I'm not interested in statistics.
1: So you're delivered this news and you obviously set forth a, a course in your own mind that you're, you know, you have experience athletically with challenges and taking things on. And now, now you're, you know, you're on a whole new, a whole new playing field. And uh and again from having attended university together, I I don't think you were a science major. (laughs) (laughs) But very quickly you were gonna have to I did take geology, doesn't it? (laughs) Very quickly you're gonna have to gonna have to get a lot of information, a lot of resources and um gonna have to go back to being a student, right? And have a beginner's mind. For sure. Yeah. And I think that early on that you immediately we're looking at, maybe we might classify it broadly as both Eastern and Western medicine. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, conventional Western medicine, obviously, you know, you partake in and and I think has helped you. Agreed. Uh, But I think that uh, the Eastern medicine and some of the alternative ways to go about treating cancer, you've done a lot of heavy exploring on that. I have, I have. And, you know, that
0: came from, it hasn't all happened at once, you know, with, with Hindsight, we can see you know we can see how things unfolded, and and when they're unfolding, we're we're looking out the other way, and so for me, I guess much like when I showed up in Lake Placid and I looked at the ski jump that was out there at Interville, I was curious, and like how do you do that? How does one get to do that kind of fun thing? And you know, water ski jump was the same way, and and you know, St. Lawrence and all the things that we got to explore. Like, oh, that's let's how do we figure this out and play this game, and curiosity is, is something that I, that I've had a long time. And, and so once you're, I had to put my curiosity to work and and go, okay, I need to be curious about this disease and I need to be curious, but more importantly, I need to be curious. I'd like to be curious about how to thrive, how to, how to live and, you know, live a great life and continue on things that, that you know, the way I'd been continuing all along. I also realized pretty quickly that, you need to take control of your life and your health. You need to take responsibility for it. And about the same time, I learned that I needed to be um, practice forgiveness for myself if I had if I brought it on myself through, you know, lifestyle, and forgive myself and not beat myself up for something that maybe I did or didn't do that caused it. It's hard to say. Then follow my instincts, and and learn and listen and research and, and ask questions and lots of them. And one of the things I learned early on was you got to know who you're asking the question, who, what question are you asking and who are you asking it of? And I think it falls into that category of, you know, you better, it might be good to know the answer before you ask the question. And what I learned really early on was it mattered who I asked. So if I went to the Huntsman Cancer Institute, which I hold in really high regard, they've been beautiful to me and wonderful and they do great work. But one of my early questions was of my oncologist who I have to this day, and he's great, was what do you think about diet, nutrition, exercise, and mindfulness as part of the package? And if I'm not mistaken, he said, you know, Jeff, I think you can move the needle about 1%. At that point, I realized that I don't need to ask that person those questions because he's educated in a certain area and he's wickedly smart, spectacularly intelligent in the world of oncology and that Western medicine. And if I want to ask those questions and I want to get some real answers, I'm going to have to seek out some other experts, which I did. And and I that set me on my path of where do you go and who do you ask if you want to know about nutrition and cancer and if you want to know about mindfulness and and how powerful that is then let's go talk to some people who really know and i started that process uh that christmas after things had settled a little bit um, and i've got a story to come back to about time but that christmas fiona gave me a gift and it was a it was a, a gift Uh, an invitation to visit Canyon Ranch in Tucson, Arizona. I was floored. She had been there many, many years ago after the girls were born and she loved it from a health and fitness perspective. And Canyon Ranch, she said, Jeff, you know, I think they've got some programs down there and and they're, they're tapped into some things that I think might be interesting to you. And I have her to thank for that. And sure enough, I went down there and my intention was, it was February of 2017, And my intention was to go down there and find some spiritual stepping stones that I could begin to build a foundation on. And I learned some things down there that were, uh, you know, absolutely spectacular. I was introduced to Qigong. I did some, you know, soul journeying. I did some, had some spiritual dialogue. I met my first uh, integrative medical doctor. Oh, integrative medicine and i sat and had a wonderful conversation so i i en- enrolled and engaged completely and i was there for about a week and it was it was really eye opening uh and that was really the first place that i got some answers i was able to ask people really interesting questions and they were experts right so it was meditation it was qigong which is you know chinese energy work right qigong directly translated is is qi is is uh energy and gong is work and a guy named George Mirror was teaching uh, teaching yoga classes. And one day, I took seven yoga classes. He was teaching all kinds of different esoteric yoga practices. And I was I already had my own practice to some degree, but that really opened my eyes to this Qigong. And I and I dove in with him and had a private and learned more about that. And I still practice that to this day. I would like to go back before we go forward to. An experience that fiona and i had sitting in our um where you were just standing a few minutes ago talking to fiona and it was right after my kidney had been taken out and i was home and i was recovering and she and i were were you know looking at each other with that shocked literally holy shit, what now and at that point through that many tears and, you know, a realization that life had just changed pretty dramatically and and, uh, that we would, we would sally forth. But I asked for some time. The one thing I asked for was time. And I said that to Fiona, I said, you know, I don't know how this is going to play out. We didn't have any information. Like we didn't know anything other than it had been taken out. And at that point, you don't know if you've got months, half a year, a year, and I asked for some time, and man, I've been granted some time, some really, really good time. And I, I've said to many people over the years that, you know, if I'd been able to, if she and I had been able to sit there and have a crystal ball at that point, and if somebody had said, and I haven't done the math lately, because um, I don't keep track, but at one point after I, you know, went past three years, I was like, well, I can do that math pretty quickly. That's more than a thousand days. And if, if that crystal ball had said, you want some time? How about a thousand days? I just snatched that up every day of the week, every time it came up.
1: It it one, two, three, four.
0: Thanks for listening to part one of Thriving with guest host Keith Gorman. A big heartfelt thank you to Keith for stepping into the driver's seat in the podship, turning the tables, asking some great questions and engaging in really enjoyable conversation. Check out part two, where we head in some different directions and explore some other things that have been part of my life and hopefully we can turn some lights on and encourage you to check out some different possibilities for health and wellness and exploration. If you'd like to learn more about what I'm up to with this podcast, atbsthepodcast.com, where you can learn about the direction I'm headed, what I'm trying to accomplish, building community, turning some lights on. You can support us and I would be grateful. You can donate on the website. You can subscribe via Patreon. And uh, I'd also like to give a shout out to my editor, Wyatt Schmidt, a multi-talented young man. And uh, you can find him on Spotify at Wyatt Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T. Come on back and join us. And in the meantime, keep on thriving.